They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators don't make a breakthrough in that time, the chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 19, On the Level. The last episode left us on a bit of a cliffhanger. Following my last conversation with Zoe Kun in Australia, the importance of this young Eastern European man with the fair hair, who Zoe and her father had given a lift to back to Windshill, his identity has never been more important. I needed to focus my attention on him and, if possible, identify who he was. And the reason for that, really, is that he seemed to share many of the physical attributes that Fred had. So he was a thin man. He was about five foot seven. He had fair hair. He was probably of Eastern European origin. All those tick the boxes in terms of what we think or know about Fred. He was also, according to Zoe's father Frank, a female impersonator or maybe a transvestite. And that possibly fit in with some of the aspects of the case, maybe the loss of the clothes. It certainly would have made him vulnerable at a time when attitudes towards those kind of things were distinctly intolerant. But before we do that, we need to take a little bit of a step back because those attributes sound quite identifiable. But let's remember, many people have fair hair. Five foot seven, although it sounds short today, it wasn't in 1969. Remember, average height of men has risen over the last century. In fact, the average British man of 21 years of age is four inches taller now than we all were in 1920. And that's been a pretty consistent growth. So the average height now is five foot 10. In 1920, it was five foot six. So it's pretty reasonable to think in 1970 or around that time, five foot eight would have been the average height. Frank Kuhn was average height at five eight. And this young man was only slightly less than Frank. So only slightly less than average. So not a short man by 1970s standards. And everyone seemed to be thin in the 1960s and 1970s. I don't know if you've ever seen any footage of Top of the Pops from 1969. You look at the bands who were playing, you look at the audience, every young person was thinner then than they are today, probably something to do with diet. So whilst that person sounds quite identifiable, by the standards of 1969, he would have looked like anyone else. Now, I suppose we better start with this journey and it might be useful for me just to go over again the geography of the area, particularly for new listeners or for listeners who are not familiar with the local area. And of course, 
That's most listeners these days. So we're focused here on Burton-upon-Trent, which is a large town famous for its brewing industry right in the middle of England. And the River Trent runs along the eastern edge of that town, with a town lying to the west of it. There are a couple of bridges over the Trent, and over one of those bridges, on the eastern side of the river, is the village of Winds Hill. And that's where Fred was found, next to the river. Now the journey that Zoe, Frank and this man would have taken from Burton Town Centre would have taken no more than about five minutes. Across the bridge, across the Trent, turn left at the end of that bridge and then take an immediate right up Bearwood Hill. That's really the only logical route. Bearwood Hill Road rises steeply away from the river but after about half a mile it levels off and that's the route they would have taken. But where did they stop? Where did he live? Where was his house or flat? Because if I can identify exactly where that was, I can probably identify who his neighbors were. And some of those will still be alive today. And we've got a chance of identifying who he is. So the most important thing was to try to work out where exactly Frank stopped the car and this young man got out. I thought it would be a good idea to go back to my very first conversation with Zoe, back in episode 8 when she first mentioned this trip with this young man. I wanted to check whether she'd said anything in that interview that might be useful in tracking down where they went. And she did. So let me play you what she said back in episode 8. We gave this young fellow a lift and we dropped him off near Nancy Freeman's house in Windshill. She lived opposite the shops, uh, mm. sort of like a little level area with, with shops in Windshill. Um, and she lived opposite there, she was a seamstress. And we dropped the young fellow off there. But I remember we, we, we dropped, dropped him off there and he went upstairs above one of the shops, so there must have been a flat or something above one of the shops. And my dad said to me, sometimes, if I saw him and he was wearing ladies' clothes, I shouldn't embarrass him. The one thing we knew was that a lady called Nancy Freeman lived close to where he lived. So a good place to start would be to try to identify where Nancy Freeman lived and we could use that as a start point. And a very big thank you to Nick Whitaker, who's a good friend of the podcast who's helped us out before, because he contacted the records office for Staffordshire and requested the electoral register for 1968, 1969 and 1970 for that particular geographical location. He kindly sent them to me and I was very interested in two things. Were there any obvious Eastern European names on that? And where was Nancy Freeman living? The answer to question one proved disappointingly easy there were no Eastern European names which are obvious on that register. The answer to question two should have been straightforward, but it wasn't quite. The reason being, there were no Nancy Freemans anywhere, but there was a Freeman, and her first name was Annie. And as someone else pointed out to me, Nancy is a shortening 
of Annie. So we now knew where Nancy Freeman lived. And Nancy Freeman lived at 136 Bearwood Hill Road. So that becomes the initial start point of the search. But we know from what Zoe said that he lived on the opposite side of the road, above a shop in a flat. And the house directly opposite 136 is in fact 71. The numbers in Bearwood Hill Road aren't standard format. You don't have odds on one side, evens on the other, roughly keeping up with each other. On each side, you get consecutive numbers. So opposite Nancy Freeman's house was number 71. And alongside that ran the numbers 50 to 95 in consecutive order. 95 was the last one before the Anglesey Arms pub. And these were really compact terraced houses, in fact still are, in a long line. Probably all built around the start of the 20th century. The only break is that there's a road off between numbers 68 and 70, and that's Mayfield Road. So what we have really is 45 houses, but they cover no more than 200 metres. The next question in narrowing this down is though, where are the shops? Because that's what we're particularly interested in. Well, the shops seem to fall between numbers 53 and 63. And that's a bit further down than Nancy Freeman's house, but still within 100 metres. So what do we know of that row of shops from back in 1969-1970? Well, again, I'm obliged to Nick Whittaker for this because he remembers them vividly. And what he told me was that those shops really were the only local shops in the area. There was nothing else unless you went all the way into town. And by town, I mean Burton. But that row of shops on Bearwood Hill Road had everything. It had a chemist, it had a baker's, it had a fishmonger's, a butcher's, a greengrocer's, a dry cleaner's, and a newsagent's. And that reminded me of something from the last podcast. Just a, just a lift from town up to the, the little row of shops where we stopped. Yeah, Dad said he lived in a flat above the shops. Yeah. Um, and I have an idea he went through the newsagent's shop to get to his flat, perhaps, or it was next to the newsagent's shop. So I'd like you to accompany me in a walk up Bearwood Hill Road particularly between the junctions of Kensington Road and Mayfield Road. That gives us the numbers from 41 to 64, Bearwood Hill Road. So, we're going to Winshill. So I've just uh, left Mayfield Road and I'm walking down Bearwood Hill Road and the first few houses I've just seen gone past 42. Uh, these are normal houses. They're not shops with things above or anything like that. As you can tell, it's, a, it's a, still a fairly busy road. There's lots of cars parked on the pavements and at the side of the road. But now we're 
Yeah, 51, 50. That looks like it was a. That looks like it was a. A shot with a, uh, a flat above once upon a time. Now we're walking past a couple more shops, which definitely have been shops before and probably have been for a long time, and maybe flats above. And this is an interesting area. I think this is more more relevant. There's three shops, which one of them was, the end one is definitely still a news agent. Uh, there's a, a place, there's a barber's, and there's, I think, a pet store next to it. But these are one story, so there's nothing above. But then there's a gate, and the gate, I think, leads through to a little house behind, actually, and that's behind 59. 61, that is definitely a, a shop of some description and above it there's definitely some there's definitely some in some a flat of some some kind and i'm now at 67 and i'm now at mayfield road just over mayfield road which will just cross over uh that's where nancy freeman lives or lived i beg your pardon so let me just walk back now so 67 all the way down to 64 are just normal houses and then we get to 63, 62 and 61 and they look like they were once shops but it's quite modern, quite modern built. They may have changed, they may well have changed since uh, 1970. Then we get to the news agents which is 59, then 59B but they're single story, 58's a house. And then we come to a couple of other stores. And then we come down to 53, 54, which they look like houses. Number 50 could be possible. Number 50 is definitely a store, a shop, of some small shop. They're all small shops. It looks like it could have some kind of accommodation above, so that's it really. So I'm just driving away from um, the level and I'm driving back down uh, on Bearwood Hill Road, down back down towards the river. One of my impressions of Bearwood Hill Road on the level, well, it's smaller than I expected, it's narrow, it's a fairly main road through Windsill, I think, but uh, it's narrow. And there's, uh, that's a bad corner by the way, coming back onto Newton Road. Uh, but we're now back on Newton Road. Uh, yeah, it's narrow. Of course, there were nothing like as many cars around then. Most people didn't have cars. And I think most people who are using those shops wouldn't have had cars and would have, uh, would have been walking there and walking back. So very much a local area for shopping, I think. I don't think there are many options in terms of where man may have lived. Uh, I think probably on either side of that single story run, I think is the, is the prime area. So what I'll need to do, because I don't believe I'll find anyone who's living in them single story, facilities they were purely retail shops of some variety 
going past 146 and 147 Newton Road. Hello, Zoe. Really quite small options. I think what I'll do is I think I need to find out the people who are living long term in those houses. They may have had a lodger. Seems quite possible. I think lodgers were a thing back in the 60s and the 70s. In a way, they're not today. That still, still happens. People do lodge with people. I think it happened more then. I think it was a perhaps a good way of uh, of earning some, you know, additional income uh, when the opportunities of doing that weren't always easy. So either someone who was lodging with one of the families who lived there, someone who was in one of those flats. So that's my job over the course of the next uh, next few days, just to try and find people who may have lived there or their relatives who may be still alive. So I'm back in the office and the overriding impression I got from that journey is nothing really has changed in Bearwood Hill Road in the last 50 years. Sure, the shops may have changed, but what was a shop is still pretty clear. And from my estimation, 41 to 54 just like normal houses, with the possible exception of number 50. 55 is a shop as is 56 and interestingly there's a door marked 56a and I suspect that leads to a flat 57 and 58 houses again and then we get to 59 in fact there are three premises 59a 59b and 60 and they make up three shops still today but it's pretty clear that the newsagents was in this run of three premises and it's a very small run no more than about 20 meters across all of those three premises interestingly though every one of those three premises are single story buildings there's no upstairs there's no accommodation above the shops so whilst we may have found the epicenter of where this man may have lived he didn't live above the news agents. Then we get to 61 and 62 and 63. And these are three premises which are now houses but seem to have the frontages of shops. So those three are definitely potentials as well. 64, although that's a house, seems to be connected to 63 on the upstairs part. So I wouldn't rule that out completely, but it's a long shot. And the rest of the houses, before you meet the junction with Mayfield Road, they just seem like normal houses. So what does that tell me? Well, it tells me that if I'm looking for shops with premises above that may have been to let where this man may have lived, I needed to focus my attention initially on just seven premises. 50, 55, 56, 61, 62, 63, and 64. The next step was to find out who is living in each of those premises in the years 1968, 1969, and 1970. And remember, I had the electoral register for those years, so I could see who was there between those dates. So let's have a look at what the electoral register says 
about who was living there in 68, 69 and 70. Firstly, 50. Well, that's empty. It just doesn't appear on the electoral register. And that could mean two things. Firstly, no one might have been living there, which is a bit odd because there's definitely first floor accommodation there. The other thing it could mean, though, is if you're not registered to vote. Remember, this is simply a voting register. So if you're a foreign national, you might not be on it. And that could be a clue. So 50 does not appear on the register for any of the three years. 55 seems to be occupied by a man called David Tallis and then by a man called Lewis Washington and then I think by Lewis Washington and his wife. 56, well that's not appearing on the register for one year and then a lady called Kathleen Mabel Batley lives there for another two. 60, that's empty i.e. it doesn't appear for one year and then a Mr Simnet lives there for two years. 61 is occupied by the Youngman family for three years. 62 by the Baker family for three years. 63, one year it's occupied by two ladies, Christine Barrett and Evelyn Lloyd. Then it's occupied by the Smith family and then it doesn't appear. So it's either empty or occupied by someone who doesn't qualify to be on the register. And then 64, it's the Bowater family for the full three years. So of those seven premises, three are occupied by the same family unit for all three years. One's empty, 50, for all three years. And then 55, 56 and 63 seem to be occupation for relatively temporary periods and then people move on. So they're probably the things to focus on. I'm particularly interested when it doesn't appear on the register when it does afterwards, because that means it's definitely available to rent, but either is empty or occupied by someone who's not on the electoral register. The other option, of course, is a lodger with one of the long-term resident families. So the other option was I needed to identify any descendants of those families who may have a recollection of who is living on the level in their immediate vicinity at the end of the 1960s. Particularly, obviously, if they remember a young Eastern European man who is living in very close proximity to them. But that's for next time. Thanks for downloading the podcast. I wanted to pay tribute, really, to the cottage industry that this has become. Because I know I'm the voice of the podcast, and therefore I probably get a bit more credit than I deserve. But what's important for people to realise is that I'm just one of a team of people who are spending hours on this now. So it's not a one-man investigation, and it hasn't been for quite a while. It's a collective made up of volunteers all over the place who are dedicated to solving this case. For me, it's incredibly helpful because there's this constant flow of ideas and research taking place every day and all hours of the day. Honestly, I don't think any of the last 10 podcasts would have been possible without this. So 
If this ever does get solved, it will really be the story of how an online community identified a 50-year-old murder victim. So I think it's appropriate for me to pay particular tribute to people like Marg Harrison, Kim Macbeth, David Adkins, Neil DeVille, Nick Whittaker, Joe Willis, and everyone else who's making a really big contribution to this. And I think the team will grow from here because I've got plans to create a Wikipedia page for the case where the truth can be recorded. One of the things I've noticed over producing this podcast is there's a lot of inaccuracies out there. So I thought it might be a good idea to create a Wikipedia page where the truth is recorded and where people can reference all the information that they need to. And hopefully there'll be more on that in the next podcast. Now, I understand not everyone has the time or the access to get involved with the research side of things, but you can still help. And you can help simply by telling people about the podcast, sharing it on your Facebook page or in Facebook groups you might be in, or just in conversation. Everyone who listens to this found it by word of mouth, and that's always the best recommendation. So if you do get a chance to tell someone about it, I'd be very grateful, because as I always say, the more people that know about it, the more chance we've got. But anyway, let's get back to the story. For the second part of this episode, I wanted to return to a subject that keeps cropping up never really gone away. That is the subject of Josef Jenner, which we covered in episode 10. It was quite a mystery. A very, very brief recap. When we learned from the university that there was a strong possibility that the victim may have been of Hungarian descent, I started to look for all the local Hungarians that were around particularly because Zoe had mentioned someone had come to their house looking for someone called Yoji, which was a shortening of Yosef. So I was going through all the births, marriages and deaths locally to see if I could come across all the Hungarians who were around at the time and follow them through to see what happened to them. And I came across a man called Yosef Jenner. And like all the others, I followed him to ascertain that he couldn't be Fred. The problem was, Josef Jenner came to a dead end about 1970, and in a very bizarre twist, he seemed to marry a lady called Valtraut Annalina on the south coast, at exactly the same time that Valtraud Annalina, Frank Kun's wife, was there, about to make the journey with Frank and Zoe to Australia. And given the fact that Josef Jenner was a virtually unknown name in the UK at the time, and Valtraud or Valtraut Annalina even more rare, that seemed to be just too much of a coincidence. But I was able to find Valtraud Annalina's embarkation form when she arrived in Australia, consecutively numbered with Frank and Zoe's. So she was definitely in Australia. So it seemed to prove that there must have been two Valtraud, Valtraud Annalinas in the same place at the same time. So at that point, and with other pressing lines of inquiry, I moved on. But people 
I think listening to the episode at the time thought there was more to it. So while we've been investigating other things, I've kept an eye on that. And we've been slowly trying to piece together what might have happened. And I want to talk to you about the progress we've made on that. Now, you'll remember, I spoke to Joe Zenner, Yosef's son, in episode 10. He was very helpful in that episode. And in preparing this episode, I've spoken a lot with Mo Tomlin. You'll find her on the Facebook group, and she happens to be Yosef Zenner's daughter. Mo has no idea what happened to her father after she was born. She's never seen him, and he's probably never seen her in their lives. But we were able to piece together a bit more of what had happened to Josef Jena after 1970. But the Josef Jena story almost certainly starts on the 15th of September 1928 when he was born in Hungary. And then the next notable event we know, 1956, the Hungarian uprising crushed by Russian troops and thousands of Hungarian refugees escaped to the West. And many end up in the UK. And one of them is Josef Jena. And he ends up in Sheffield, in a large house for refugees, run by a man, a Polish man, called Aloysi Kalinski. Aloysi Kalinski was married to a lady called Dereva Kalinski. Soon after moving into the house, Josef Jena began a relationship with Dereva, with the wife of the man whose house he was living in. Yosef and Dereva do not get married, but they do have at least two children. Yosef Jenner, who we met in podcast 10, and Dereva Jenner, who I know as Mo Tomlin on the Facebook page. Yosef Jenner, the son, was born in 1958 in Yorkshire. But then the family moved to the south coast, because Dereva Mo Jenner is born in 1959 in Eastbourne. Sometime before Mo Jenner is born in 1969, Josef Jenner disappears. He reappears in 1960 back in Yorkshire, marrying a lady called Helena Sumara. And we have the marriage certificate for that marriage. It took place at Geisley Registry Office in 1960. He is 32. She is 17. So that makes him born in 1928, which we know is right. And he puts his profession as a hairdresser. And his father's profession, and his father was also called Josef Jenner, his father's profession is also a hairdresser. Now that's important because it reoccurs a little later on. So, having finished that relationship with Dereva, he's now back in Yorkshire and married to Helena Sumara. The marriage between Josef Jenner and Helena Sumara doesn't last long. They have one daughter, Susan E. Jenner, who was born in 1961 in Bradford, New Yorkshire. But the next time we see any of those two people appear in the records, it's Helena, and she's getting remarried in 1965 to a man called Eugenius Krajewski. So what we know is that by 1965, 
Josef Jena and Helena Samara were not together. So where do we see Josef Jena appearing next? Well, it's in 1966, in Derby, to Anita Eileen Blackham. That's where I first saw him, a Hungarian getting married around the Derby-Burton area. Now, there is some doubt about this, because remember, I showed a picture of Josef Jena to Anita, and she said it's not him. So there could be two people involved. But what I do know is that a Josef Jena got married to Anita Blackham in 1966. Now remember, this is the knife thrower, and that marriage lasted one week, but it took three years for the divorce to come through. And remember when I talked to Anita's son, and I asked him, what did the knife thrower do when he wasn't knife throwing? He was a hairdresser, he said. Now, could be a coincidence, but it does sound a little bit like our man. But let's just leave that one there for the time being. Because the next marriage is in 1970 to Valtraud Annalena. And we have the marriage certificate for that marriage in Hove on the 26th of March 1970. Coincidentally, exactly one year to the day before Fred's body is found. Josef Jenner shows his age as 41. Again, that matches exactly to the 15th of September 1928 birth date. So we can be sure it's the same man. His profession on that marriage certificate, hairdresser. His father's profession, hairdresser. It's the same man as the Helena Samara marriage. But now he's back on the south coast. So he seems to be moving between Yorkshire and the south coast and maybe Derbyshire Burton area. So that's where the trail goes cold. But we were about to warm it up again. The first thing we discovered is that Valtraut is still alive and using her old name, Kinast, which was her father's name, must have been her maiden name. So we can definitely put to bed any thoughts that Valtraud Annalena Kuhn and Valtraud Annalena Kinast were the same person. They're not the same person. So I've sent her a letter about the case, hoping I might one day be able to talk to her. The next clue was a marriage using a slightly different name in London in May 1979. And again, we have the marriage certificate for that marriage. A man called Joseph Jenner married a lady called Joyce Yvonne Wilcoxon. Joseph's age was shown as 51, so the birth date of 1928 is correct. His occupation, a hairdresser. His father, also called Joseph, but he's now an army officer, so it could be a different person. Except for one thing, the signature. That marriage certificate has a signature. I also have the marriage certificate for Voltraud and Alina marriage, and it's the same signature. Josef Jenner was now in London and calling himself Josef Jenner. But that's not the end of the story, because now we have 
Joseph Jenner and Joyce Yvonne Jenner. What else can we find out? And there was always going to be one final twist in the life of Joseph Jenner. And that final twist was revealed in two death certificates. One in 1993 for Joyce Yvonne and one in 1995 for Joseph. But not Jenner, Lennox. Joyce Yvonne Lennox and Joseph Lennox. They changed their names from Jenner to Lennox. And how do we know that? How do you know they're the same people? Well, all the evidence is revealed on those death certificates. Joyce Yvonne put her maiden name as Brown. Now, when she got married to Yosef, it was shown as Wilcoxon, but her father's name was Brown. And we've tied that up to the 1939 register with Joyce Brown being shown. And the date of birth on that 1939 register is the same as is on the death certificate. So Joyce Yvonne Jenner became Joyce Yvonne Lennox and Yosef Jenner became Joseph Lennox. How do we know that? Well, the birth date. The birth date shown on the death certificate, 15th of September 1928 in Hungary, which is exactly where we started. So that's the life of Joseph Jenner. There are bits missing still. And the bit I really want to understand is the Anita Blackham marriage, whether that was our Josef Jenner or whether it wasn't. Because I've got the certificate for that marriage as well. It's a facsimile though, it's not the original. And there's no signature on it. The signature seems to have been done by the registrar but we do have certain other information. Obviously this marriage took place in 1966 and he puts his age as 33. That's not right. It should have been 38. So that potentially suggests it's a different person. His occupation, remember he was a knife thrower, he puts it in as variety artist and that's not a hairdresser. So that might not be the same person. But here's where it gets interesting. His father's name, Josef Jenner, in brackets deceased, and in brackets deceased appears on every one of the marriage certificates. So that's a match. And his father's occupation, hairdresser. So that's a match. So two things suggest that was our Josef Jenner, and two things suggest it's not. I've sent for the original because if the original has the original signatures on it we'll know for certain i passed all this information on to mo tomlin uh, in a very long phone call and it was a surprise for mo because she didn't know anything really about what had happened to yosef jenna after she was born the two people had never met and now, at least, I hope, she has some additional pieces of her own personal jigsaw in terms of what happened to her father. And maybe there may be other relations that she never knew existed. Until next time.
Actually, no, wait. I was going to finish this episode at that point. In fact, I've recorded most of it. But on Thursday, I rang Zoe just to make sure I was on the right lines with those particular houses, and she confirmed that I was. That's where the young man was dropped off. But conversations with Zoe don't last five minutes. They last 95 minutes. And there's always tons and tons of background and context in them. And I was listening back to that conversation on Friday, and something jumped out at me. And I'll give you a flavour of what that was, but we've only just started to investigate what might be going on there. But let me play you that specific part of the conversation. See what you think. One other thing I I wanted to ask. Before your mum and dad moved to Newton Road, and maybe even when you were a baby, you lived somewhere, did you live somewhere else in Windsor? Was there another house before 126 Newton Road? I believe my dad lived in Windsor somewhere. Um, but when basically they got married and moved straight into the place at 126. So they, they were there for two months before I was even conceived. Yeah, I've got a feeling that's the case as well. He didn't keep hold of that house did he I mean he didn't rent it out or anything like that he, that was sold and then you all moved into 126 um no well, he was renting somewhere I had an idea it was a, a boarding place that there were several young people living with dad before we got married so it was, it was it could have been a house um we had three or four young men or something like that living in it okay interesting you don't know where it was no no, I don't think he ever mentioned it. But then Dad wasn't the sort of person that that got sentimental about places. Yeah, yeah. He never walked past a, a street and said, "Hey, oh, used to live there before we moved to Wanty Six. Um, no. That, when I think about it, that's actually a little bit curious. But perhaps we never walked past it. Okay. You know, that's a possibility. It may may have been in one of the back streets somewhere, and we just never ever went past. And you know, if we had, he'd have said, "Oh, he's a loot there," but it, it just never happened. No, no, no knowledge of where Dad lived before he and Mum were married. But my mum actually told me that Dad had been living somewhere in Winfield before they were married. I knew I'd seen that address somewhere before, and I racked my brains to try to remember where. And then eventually, I did. It was the address given in the naturalisation notification in the London Gazette when Ferenc Kun, known as Frank, became a naturalised UK citizen. It was in the London Gazette. I went and found it again. There it is. Ferenc Kun, known as Frank, flour miller, address 44 Melbourne Avenue, Windshill. That was his old address. That was dated, his application that is, the 9th of June 1954. So I knew that on the 9th of June 1954, Frank Cunn had been living at 44 Melbourne Avenue, Windshill. That was before he got married. And that discovery started a very interesting next stage of the investigation. But that really is for next time. So... Until next time, have a good one.
The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSE Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis. <laughs>